This is Opinionated. I don't really have a full understanding of it, but that won't stop me from having an opinion. That's why we're here. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson. You know, crypto is no longer just about money. It's about culture now. It's like you're thumbing your nose at the process. Part of politics and part of sports and part of gaming. And it's not just the future of money anymore. As they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. It believes crypto is bad and it wants it out. I'm even old enough to remember when Microsoft was a kind of cool company in Silicon Valley. Ben, you're old enough to remember when telegrams came over a wire under the sea. (laughs) And just a reminder... Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello, it's Opinionated, podcast about all good and bad things on crypto. And I'm your host, Ben Schiller. I'm the features editor here at Coindesk. And joining me are Danny Nelson. Danny? Good morning, good evening, good night. Good evening, good night. And senior reporter Anna Bedakova, who I think is calling in from Georgia. Is that right? I am. The Georgia, not the American Georgia, the Georgia in the North Caucasus. Cool. We're going to discuss what has been called the largest financial crime ever, which is saying something, and certainly the largest scam in crypto, which is saying even more. And this is the story of one coin and a particular lady called Dr. Ruja Ignatova, who built an amazing scam or amazing business, student of millions and millions and billions of dollars, promised to change the world. And then she promptly disappeared. So it's kind of a classic kind of exit scam story. And joining us to talk about that is Jamie Bartlett, who is an experienced veteran British journalist and author of several great books. And the most recent one we're talking about today is called The Missing Crypto Queen. And it's a riveting, rather unsettling, but riveting read. Highly recommended. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks for having me. Great. So take us back to the beginning. I mean, how did you get into this story in the first place? What sort of drew you in? And this was initially a podcast, right? Yeah, it was, a, it was a BBC Sounds podcast. I'd actually been writing about Bitcoin for quite a long time. I did a TED talk. How about that? I did a TED talk about how to buy drugs on the dark net using right. Bitcoin. So that's my sort of first introduction into Bitcoin started. It was sort of the Silk Road era, 2013-14. And 2018, a BBC producer called Georgia Katz, she's on the podcast, She's sitting around a dinner table and some dude, friend of a friend, says, oh, Georgia, I've got this amazing new cryptocurrency. It's called OneCoin. It's the next Bitcoin. It's massive. It's millions and billions have already been invested. Would you like to invest? And she's a journalist, so she's thinking, well, I can't afford it anyway, but uh, keep talking. He says, yeah, the only, sort of, the only problem with it really is the founders sort of hasn't really been seen for about a year, but it doesn't matter. Because, you know, the coin is incredible. She then does a bit of digging, a bit of looking into it, sees my TED talk on Bitcoin and says, would you like to sort of partner up and look into this really bizarre case of one coin, this massive, gigantic cryptocurrency, apparently, that has a missing founder, but everyone drives Lamborghinis. And I thought I was really confused when she talked to me about it, because I thought I knew about all the big crypto coins. You know, I've been following it for a long time. I never heard of this thing. When we start looking into it more, it actually, we realize that it's not really a cryptocurrency at all. It's a multi-level marketing company. You know, the sort of Amway, Tupperware, Herbalife. But she's not selling vitamins or cleaning products. She's selling a cryptocurrency through multi-level marketing, which is amazing because you don't need to have your garage filled up with boxes of products you can't sell to your friends and family. So Jamie, not everyone knows the story of the crypto queen. Can you just give us a quick rundown of that? 
interesting one coin. She launches it in 2014, saying it's kind of this revolutionary new Bitcoin. It's all centralized. My blockchain secret, but that's really good because that means it won't get stolen. So it's not open source like the others, but that means it's really secure. So like we can make sure criminals are kicked off of it. So we control the blockchain. So trust me, it's legit. But the difference is we sell it through multi-level marketing. So you sell to your friends and they sell to their friends and they sell to their friends and everyone gets a commission, but you are going to have, instead of a vitamin or a shampoo, you're going to have the next Bitcoin. So within about 18 months of launching this, a million people had put their money, maybe as much as four to five billion euros into one coin, all sitting there with wallets that they, you know, accounts, they'd log in, check it. The price kept going up. So by mid-2017, hundreds of billions of euros worth of one coin people think they have sitting in their wallets. And then in October 2017, she takes a Ryanair flight from Sofia, Bulgaria to Athens, Greece and disappears. Who took the flight for those in our audience who, who doesn't know the whole story? Who took the flight? Did I not even say the name of the woman that started it all up? Well, Ben, you already did. But So her name is Dr. Ruja Ignatova. German-Bulgarian businesswoman, degree from Oxford, PhD from Constance University in comparative law, worked for a top consulting firm. She's the one that turns up and calls herself the crypto queen. You know, I'm a woman in a male-dominated industry. You know, I'm the first sort of founder in this world. And Bitcoin's rubbish. You know, it's criminals, it's anarchists, it's a revolutionary. No one's going to want to do this. Mine is like to work within the system. So she's the founder. There's a co-founder with her who's more of a multi-level marketing guy. But she's the kind of face of the whole company. And she's the one that disappears into thin air in 2017. So she just got on and got off this plane and has never been seen or heard from since? Well, she has been seen or heard from since by various people who've cited her, who I've spoken to, who have contacted me. So it's not quite true that she's never been seen, but there's no pictures of her. There's no, I mean, she's changed her appearance completely. Look, there's an arrest warrant out for her from Germany, an indictment from the New York Southern District Court, an arrest warrant in India. She's on Europol's most wanted list. There's an Interpol red notice for her, but still she's at large. What's your best guess about where she is? I'm just going to, I'm completely giving away the end of the book here. Well, I think my publisher would kill me. But let me just say that I don't think she's in a place where people expect her to be. We got a lot of different sightings and followed a lot of different leads. We think we also found one of her possibly a sort of secretive mansion that she owns in Dubai. She spent a lot of time in Dubai. And a lot of people from the multi-level marketing world whose projects collapse seem to end up in Dubai. I think she was probably there for a while after she disappeared, after the authorities were on to her. Then I think she got in trouble with the Dubai authorities and moved on again. And I'll leave the final current view on where she is right now to people who read the book. Okay, sorry for blowing the ending. (laughs) So, I mean, thousands of people have come out with what they think are better versions of Bitcoin and lots of cryptos out there. A lot of uh, very flamboyant people have been promoting projects like this. Why do you think she was so successful in getting so many people to buy into this? There are a couple of reasons. One is that I think she was targeting quite a different audience. There were no institutional investors putting money into OneCoin. There were no sophisticated investors putting money into OneCoin. It was ordinary people who maybe six months earlier had put money into multi-level marketing coffee, who were sort of 
had heard of Bitcoin, had seen an article in the New York Times that some Norwegian guy spent $27 in Bitcoin on 2010 and is now a multimillionaire or whatever, but didn't really understand the technicalities of it and heard from a friend about this exciting new thing. And they were being told that back in those days, 2014, 15, what was the price of Bitcoin? $300, $400, slightly higher at times, slightly lower at times, that they had missed the boat, that it was too late for them. But OneCoin was their chance to get in early. And so this was 175 countries. This was maybe as many as a million people from all over the world in a strange way. I don't want to upset any of your listeners, but there was a strange similarity between the multi-level marketing narrative and some of the, let's say, really exuberant cryptocurrency conferences, you know, change your life. This is about overthrowing the system, financial freedom, financial revolution. So she employed people that six months earlier were selling coffee and vitamins, and they were brilliant at it. Because all they do is sell this dream to people of changing their lives by working in multi-level marketing. So when she turns up to them and says, would you like to sell one coin instead? They think, brilliant, this is the easiest multi-level marketing product I've ever sold. No one's going to have to have their garage full of vitamin tablets anymore. And there's a ready-made audience of millions of people around the world in this industry who just lapped it all up. And the strangest thing is, all these multi-level marketing guys are watching videos by Vitalik Buterin or whoever else about crypto, thinking they're part of this revolution, mm. but they're in a multi-level marketing. They barely even know what they've bought. I think she also benefited, frankly, from being the first woman in this industry. And a lot of people, investors I spoke to said, we were so happy to see a woman founder with a big company. We just wanted to put our money behind it. It so was also pretty early, I want to say. 2016? What year was that? Oh, no, it starts. It actually starts in very late 2014. Even less people knew about crypto back then. And probably the whole idea and proposition sounded very lucrative. But the most fascinating thing, you can totally do that these days, I think. Like maybe not that plain, simple scam. You know, people jump into crypto for the very same reason still. People keep getting burned on schemes much more elaborate, but still. Yeah. I think that today the schemes have to be more elaborate though, right? Like nowadays, if you're going to have a crypto scheme, you're not going to just be able to sell. Maybe you can, but you're not usually going to just be able to sell an idea without even having it on a chain, right? You're going to need to have people set up a wallet to do this, to that, to that, to then separate themselves from the money. And the true crazy power I think of OneCoin is, it wasn't even a crypto, right? It wasn't the idea of a cryptocurrency and the promise of a cryptocurrency that didn't actually yeah. come to fruition. And know. the language, the language, the terminology. The, the, the change the, sort of, the world, Tony Robbins yeah. type. And, rah, also, rah. and also it was, I think, investors, and this probably is, Anna, where it, there is a similarity still in the motivation, were just driven by this really irrational fear of missing out. They just were terrified that there was a 10,000% return available and they were going to miss it. And they'd see their friends down the road who maybe got lucky on Bitcoin in 2011. All the critical faculties that they should have applied flew out the window because they thought there was the chance, just a chance, that they would get the same thing again. And that in 2014, I feel so sorry for the investors who put 5,000 euros into one coin because they were told they missed Bitcoin. In 2014, 
they actually would have made a lot of money if they'd have put it all into Bitcoin instead. But they were so worried they'd missed it already. So she turned up at a very fortuitous time because just as it looked like one coin was going to collapse, Bitcoin went on its sort of first real bull run, the 2017 up to $18,000 or whatever it was. You guys will know better than me. That alone was enough to make one coin investors feel like, you know, this is going somewhere after all. This is the future. I remember the most striking part of that story for me when I was listening to the podcast was when you talked to the guy who was hired to actually create a blockchain for one coin. And the ICO was well underway at that time, I guess. So he was like, oh my God, these people already have the company and they're selling the coin, but they don't have the technology that it should run on. Like, not at all. The multi-level marketing model was really quite clever because you'd sell a package, an education package to your friends or family that would come with free coins. But the number of coins you could buy was incredible. I mean, you could literally spend 5,000 euros and get like 10,000 coins back, which were supposedly worth five euros each. I mean, it just didn't make sense. You know, Warren Buffett would have hoovered all of these up if it was a real company. They were selling so many coins so quickly that she was selling coins that she didn't have. She may have started with some kind of blockchain where she was trying to put people's coins that were registered on there, but she was selling them at such a rate because it grew so quickly that she started selling coins she didn't have faster than her blockchain was making them. And then she was trying to reconcile the fake coins, the ones that I think she was probably storing on an SQL database, onto her real blockchain. And she approaches this actual Bitcoin specialist to do it for her. And he takes a look at it and he's like, no way, this doesn't make any sense at all. It's not possible to do. And what have you been selling everyone? And so he, as a sort of Bitcoin evangelist, was really worried that one coin was going to damage the reputation of the whole industry. So he decided to go public with what he knew. So it's not like an anti-crypto story in a way, because it was crypto people that tried to make sure the scam didn't work. It was interesting that it was a Bitcoin person that did more than probably anyone to actually expose the scam. She is the queen of the exit scam, right? Because her exit scam is more spectacular than anyone else's, I'd say, in the history of crypto in that she was a public figure, I guess, right? That physically disappeared. She wasn't an anonymous person on a Discord server, as we see time and time again in the exit scams of 2022. She was the CEO or the leader, and she got on a plane and she got off the plane in Athens. And that was it. She used to make a lot of how different she was to Satoshi Nakamoto. She'd say, you can't trust Bitcoin because it's some anonymous guy. That doesn't make any sense. She was almost using like the old world model in a sense. Like, look, you could trust this random internet dude that no one knows, or you could trust me. I've got a degree from Oxford University. Here I am standing in front of you. So she was a real persona and she embraced that. And then, I mean, yeah, the disappearance it was just absolutely phenomenal. And by the way, it happened two weeks after the Southern District of New York court issued a sealed indictment for her arrest, which means it shouldn't have been public. But within two weeks of that being issued, she's gone and she's never seen again. So it really is like an exit scam that's just, <laughs> yeah, not quite like any other. Apart from maybe that Canadian guy. I mean, that's I was going to say Quadriga, that's uh, Quadriga. Yeah, that's even more um, final. Yeah, that was pretty, yeah. pretty good as well. 
I mean, do you think that the fact that she hasn't been found and that she really went so comprehensively missing, does that suggest that she might have some help by some high-level authorities? I mean, is this kind of a situation where she's in some kind of compound protected by people who matter? Mm. Yes, it does. It does suggest that. And we go into that a little bit. You don't run a multi-billion dollar scam out of Bulgaria without knowing the right people. I mean, it's literally not possible because it's a small country and your company becomes very, very big and very, very wealthy and it draws certain people into it and you need protection and so on. So there's no doubt she was quite well protected and we document some of those connections. But, you know, when I looked through the Europol Most Wanted list, everyone was saying to me, you can't just disappear. It doesn't happen. People get found. There's cameras everywhere. You look through the Europol Most Wanted list and you realise just how many people do go on the run for very, very long periods of time. And if you've got enough money, she flew to Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan and bought herself a fake passport, like a diplomatic passport. She spent a lot of money on plastic surgery. It's believed that she has multiple official passports from different countries, a completely new name, a new face. And according to her brother, who has since been arrested, by the way, at least $500 million. So you can go on the run for quite a long time when all of those pieces are arranged. Crime does and pay, then. I'd hate to say it. If you read the book, I'm afraid you might think that. Except that she can't sleep easily at night because her little brother, who she left in charge of the company when she went on the run, is now in prison in the US. Yeah. And half the world's police forces are looking for her. So crime might pay, but I don't think she's having the best time of it. How do we know she changed her physical appearance? Firstly, all the way between 2014 and 2017, if you look, she's changing her appearance gradually every single year. And then I was told by someone who was quite close to her, I can't reveal who it was, that she had completely transformed how she looked. Interesting. So what happened to her main partner? I think his name was Sebastian Greenwood. He was kind of a cheerleader for her. Yeah, in the podcast, we're really all about Dr. Ruja, the crypto queen, the woman, the face of the company. But of equal importance to her is a guy that no one in your world would have heard of called Sebastian Greenwood, although he claimed to be a great crypto pioneer. But he was also a PR pioneer and a payments pioneer and a multi-level marketing pioneer. He just could reinvent himself constantly. He was the brains behind the multi-level marketing side of the business working out how that would work, recruiting people, designing what they call the compensation model. Swedish-British citizen. Soon after Ruja disappears, he thinks, oh man, this isn't going well. He had multiple houses all over the world because he was making tens of millions as well. He goes to Thailand and he decides he's going to stay in Thailand because I think he thought he was fairly safe, except that the US authorities were onto one coin all along. So in 2018... The Thai police and the, basically the FBI bash down his door and arrest him and extradite him secretly back to the US. And now he's awaiting trial in, I think it's either Brooklyn Correctional Facility or Manhattan Correctional Prison, whatever it's called. So he is now awaiting trial again on multiple counts of fraud and money laundering. Did you manage to speak to him? I did not. I did not. He's not allowed out of prison. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Are you all bored of hearing crypto scam stories now? You like, does it like get on your nerves? Well, this yeah. one, I like this one because it's the original and it also <laughs> is so different, right? It's so much more based on the idea of the thing 
than it is on, you know, this technical or that or anything. It's just a pure old timey scam, but with that crypto flair to it. So I, I kind of like it because of that. The Department of Justice called it an old fashioned pyramid scheme with a digital twist, really. I mean, just mm. with a take an old fashioned Ponzi scheme and say, it's crypto, it's the future of finance, it's the revolution we've all been waiting for. And it just suddenly seems to work and people lose their mind. Some people were upset with me calling it the crypto queen or a crypto scam because they would say it's an MLM scam. They're just using crypto as a way to promote an MLM scam. Well, it's the accelerant really, right? It's an MLM scam, but then you have this nugget to it that makes it global and that makes it much more appealing and much more that the potential of it just goes through the roof because of its associations with Bitcoin. Hmm, exactly right. What about the victims here? Did we speak to any of those and did they lose all of their money and are there stories of people now destitute because of this Ponzi scheme? So the thing about pyramid schemes is that the people at the top do make money. The people that are in early, and I've got bad news for an ordinary investor, if you're hearing about it, you're not near the top of the pyramid, you're going to be near the bottom, just statistically speaking. <laughs> Even though you're told that you're near the top, you're not. You're somewhere near the bottom. A small number, let's say 10,000 or so promoters, actually made a lot of money through this currency because they were making commissions. Some of them had people that were selling for them, who had people that were selling for them, who had people that were selling for them, that went down hundreds of people. And they would be making a tiny cut on every sale that was made. But they'd all add up together, an amount to maybe, in some cases, as much as a million euros a month they were making, just on commissions from selling this coin, selling this nothing, this Ponzi points. So a small proportion at the top were making money. The rest of the pyramid were losing everything. But the difficulty is, for every victim, they were often also a promoter. They would buy 10,000 euros worth of one coin, but then they would sell 50,000 euros worth of one coin to their friends and family. And everyone was like tied in together. And it's one reason it took so long for people to come forward because they didn't want to accept it was a scam. Yeah. Because accepting it was a scam would mean they'd have to admit they scammed their brother, their cousin, their best friend. And it's really hard for the authorities there because people who are victims might also get in trouble for, for selling it. So they didn't want to go forward in case they'd get in trouble themselves. But yeah, I mean, the one that most people might know is I went to a village 500 miles away from Kampala, all the way over in the west of the country. And the villages where most people have heard of Bitcoin and everyone's heard of OneCoin. Mm. I mean, she was as famous as Toshi Nakamoto in these places. So she and was able to sell the idea of OneCoin even to people who didn't have the benefit of the association with that other big investment that really has paid off. They'd heard of it. They vaguely heard of people were making money on this. They wouldn't have known Satoshi Nakamoto. They wouldn't have known 21 million. They wouldn't have known what's the current reward for my, none of that stuff, but they might have heard about Bitcoin vaguely, but they knew one coin. They knew Dr. Ruja Ignatov. They knew it based in Sofia. They knew it had 120 billion coins. It was more famous. The thing is, she didn't sell it. That's the thing. The promoters were selling it. Like she'd wake up one morning and 500,000 one coin would have been sold in a small village in Uganda. She wouldn't even know about it. She didn't tell any, she didn't say anything. It was promoters selling to other people. Every day there'd be a seminar in Japan, in Kampala, in London, who knows? 
where all these like thousands of ordinary people would be doing the selling for her. And they would often give it a little flavor. So in Uganda, they'd say, you can't trust the banks. They won't even give you a bank account. And if you're going to do remittance payments, they're going to charge you a fortune. And this is what one coin does. But in China, it would be something slightly different. It would be, for some people, this might be a way of getting money out of the country if you need to circumvent currency controls. And in America, there were promoters that were saying it was a, I'm sorry to say, it was like a, it was a vision from God who told us that this was the future of currency. Everyone had their own flavor. And that's the genius of multi-level marketing as well. Each person could sell it how they wanted. That's kind of telling that this kind of argument worked in the US, I must say. But, but in a way, I mean, this is kind of a genius project. I mean, to take in so many people with something that doesn't really exist and that shows a sort of put spell, really, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, like she really was. I spoke to former teachers of hers who said in their 30-year career, she was the smartest student they'd ever taught. She was incredibly quick, incredibly fast. She could speak five languages. She turned up in Germany age 10, not speaking a word of German. Six months later, she's reciting German poetry. Right. This is an extremely clever woman. I mean, she was a junior partner at McKinsey's in Sofia, Bulgaria, one of the youngest they'd ever had. And people who worked with her told me she's a complete workaholic. She was brilliant. I mean, she was an amazing colleague. So it's not made up how clever she was. And the chutzpah is the right bit. You know, the willingness, the ability to go up there and actually say this on a stage, 10,000 screaming people when it's a lie. That's the thing I find harder to understand. I mean, how you can have the courage almost to do that. But a lot of people start to believe their own lies when they get into these things. And it's a bit Bernie Madoff-like. I, I mm. believe that all along she somehow thought she was clever enough to come up with a solution somehow to solve her problems. So then her exit, you mentioned it was two weeks after a sealed indictment. Did she somehow find out about this indictment and that's why she left? Or was it just a coincidence that she... I mean, I've, do you think it's a coincidence that she... Well, you're <laughs> I, the expert. I, 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 uh, no one will ever give you a direct answer on this, but um, my suspicion is on the balance of probabilities and the evidence I've seen is that the US authorities, for example, said that they have evidence she was paying off Bulgarian officials. I was told by one source that she had received this information from a Bulgarian official as well. My strong suspicion is that, yes, she was told about it, and that's the reason she fled. Some people have compared her to Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. Do you see any connection there? She was far more sort of glamorous in the way she dressed. I mean, she, Elizabeth Holmes was able to sort of seduce sophisticated institutional investors, and senior politicians, George Schultz and so on. Yeah. Rouge was more going for the look at my glamorous lifestyle, my $1 million necklace, the Lamborghinis parked out front. You can have this life if you want it. Right. She wasn't sort of trying to intellectually outsmart people. She was trying to sell them a lifestyle. So her sort of modus operandi was quite different. But where she was very, very good as well was similar to Elizabeth Holmes, was to sort of leverage media coverage very cleverly. You know, she'd get a glowing article in somewhere that she'd make sure was promoted widely. She'd use that to get another good piece of, you know, journalistic coverage. She spoke at an event hosted by The Economist. Really? She made sure was sort of spread far and wide, but her company sponsored the event that she spoke at. But obviously that's never mentioned when she's sharing, you know, here I am at The Economist. 
And most investors who did not understand anything about cryptocurrency simply looked at that and thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, she must be legit if big companies are letting her speak at their conference. So she was very clever. And I, I remember with Elizabeth Holmes, she was also clever in her use of media, but also she benefited in the same way from being that female founder, I think, you know, breaking through the glass barrier of the billion dollar unicorn companies, right. which Rouge definitely played on as well. And maybe there was a part of like the fake it till you make it culture that a lot of people say that's essentially what it was with Elizabeth Holmes, that she thought she could build the technology that she was selling to people somehow, and she'd figure it out when she got enough investment. Right. Rouge was a sort of extreme version of that. I still believe with all the millions, she billions she had, she thought she could somehow build a big blockchain and somehow could sell it on an exchange and somehow the price might go up and she could redeem what the tokens people held. I believe she still thought she could somehow until it was obvious she couldn't and then she disappeared. So there was this sort of arrogance and hubris in thinking, yeah, yeah, I've cut a few corners, but that's tech, isn't it? That's VC culture. That's what we all do. Everyone does that. Everyone knows that. It's a fine line, isn't it? I mean, some people are sort of flying by the seat of their pants like that and they get away with it. Yeah, and they do. And I suppose if you somehow get that luck and the following wind and you do manage to build the company, you're held as a business genius. <laughs> and if the wind blows against you and knocks you off course, you're a scam artist. So it really can be a bit like that. All right. So any kind of thoughts to go away with, Jamie? What do you think the kind of long-term lesson here is? I want to know really what the crypto world thinks of their responsibility in all of this. Because the thing that really pushed this through the roof was fear of missing out. I spent so long trying to work out what's the single thing. And it was a fear, this unbelievable fear that people were going to miss 10,000% return. They didn't want 30%. They didn't want 50%. They wanted 1,000%. And they all believed it was possible because they'd all seen this language of financial revolution, the lines always going up. Yes, it might go down sometimes. This is the guaranteed future. It's mathematically ironclad. And she played on that. And investors were suckered by that. It's hard to know really what the exact lesson is, but the fear of missing out to me, I get the fear of missing out when I look at my friends on Instagram and what they're doing and where they're going on holiday. It's such a powerful emotion. Yeah. It makes you act in crazy ways. And I try and advise people when they feel it, you're not about to make a smart investment decision if you're being driven by this irrational fear of missing out. But unfortunately, half of Silicon Valley seems to run on fear of missing out as well. So it's not an easy thing to turn around. But the other thing, there's going to be lessons for regulators. They need to act quicker because Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes grow so fast because of the pyramid structure of sales. They go from naught to a million investors in, in a year and a half. And by the time the investors have already put their money in and the regulator sees what's going on, it's all too late. So when it comes to pyramid schemes using NFTs or crypto or whatever exciting new hyped up technology they'll use, and they will, regulators have got to be quicker. They've got to issue certain like moratoriums on certain types of projects because otherwise they're just too slow. It's no good saying Bank of England's going to review this and come back in 18 months' time. It's too late. All right. Thanks very much for coming on, Jamie. That was excellent. The book is called The Missing Crypto Queen and is sold by Penguin in the UK and Hatchet in the US. Bye. Thank you very much, Jamie. Danny, what are your thoughts on this? What are your takeaways here? I'm excited to read the book because I think it's going to be an informative experience when looking out at all the other scams we cover. 
I'm trying to understand on one side of the crypto markets, how these hedge funds blow up. And in order to do that, I want to go and I want to read about long-term capital management and these traditional financial stories. Now for the crypto scam world, this could be a very informative read as well. Anna? Yeah. And also it just keeps striking me how people don't change. And we kind of tend to hope that people learn from the lessons of the past. But, but really, when you look at the scams, they might use different techniques. But it's also the main drive, as Jamie noticed, is that look at people who are doing this. Look how wealthier they're getting. Do you want to be like the most stupid person in the room who didn't get this amazing chance when everybody was making millions? And then you're like, all these people who I believe are smart are doing this. Especially, you know, if you see somebody who do have real authorities, like actual VCs, we want to point our fingers here, you know, going on Twitter and say, hey, here's the way. Have fun, stay cool. Have fun, stay cool. That is another another part. Yeah. (laughs) We're all going to make it. And also there's this, this phrase I completely hate, do your own research, because people who use it completely miss the point. Like... People who use it normally don't have a technical capacity to do an actual research on the project. Tools they use to analyze the the new project are not relevant to what it actually is. And 99% of the public do not have like intellectual tools to actually check if this is a real technology, if this blockchain is secure, if this smart contract is going to work and so on and so forth. So it's like endless lottery and people get burned all the time. And what actually drives people, you know, it's always this FOMO. The worst part is I don't even know what kind of advice can be made here. Read my book. That's the-, <laughs> the takeaway is take the money you're going to put into one coin, into Bitcoin, and go out and buy a nice hardcover for yourself. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> On that note, all right. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. It's nice to speak to you all. This has been Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller. That was Danny Nelson and Anna Bledikova and Jamie Bartlett. And we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Bledikova, Danny Nelson, and guest Jamie Bartlett. Today's show was produced and edited by Eleanor Paul, with additional production support and announcements by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme song is by Ellison. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, opinionated, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.